You are listening to Sheep Might Fly, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Rayner Roberts. This, uh, our current serial is Musketeer Space. This will be the last chapter that I read for now. I'm taking a little Musketeer Space hiatus to break it up with a, a new novelette. I'm going to say novelette. It's not finished yet. Uh, in the Belladonna, in the Belladonna U series. Uh, then I'll be coming back a little bit later in the year to finish the rest of the Musketeers. If you find yourself missing the Musketeers, uh, you can check out uh, the book itself, which is available on various platforms, or it's one of the do- it's one of the downloads that's available if you sign up to my Patreon for a dollar a month. Uh, also, you could choose now to read, if you haven't previously, the prequel novella Joyeux, which is set uh, about a year to six months. It's set before Dana arrives, so it's set before the beginning of Musketeer Space. However, when this novel was originally being published as a serial, this halfway point is also when I published the prequel novella, so it's kind of the sweet spot for learning a little bit more in depth about some of those events that happened back in the day that are, of course, terribly plot significant. Okay, so Musketeer Space, Chapter 31. Musketeers at War. Dana stared at the viewscreen, where the Regents' declaration of war still hung in the air. Her first thought was of Athos, of the terrible look in his eyes when he confessed to her that his husband had been a spy for the sun-kissed. He had loved one of them, an alien, without knowing it. Right now, his jaw was tense. He muttered to Aramis, Hell of a time to be without a ship. You'll have time to acquire a new helm and harness, Aramis said, and a hull to wrap around it. Not a lot of time, Athos grated back. His eyes flicked to Dana, and the look on his face had nothing to do with that deep misery he had spilled out to her on the floor of the cellar of the Gilded Lily. It was pity, she realised, with a sinking feeling. It was... He was looking at her as if he expected her to be the one to fall apart. Why would he think that? Her three friends might be going off to war without her, but she was part of the Mecha Squad. It was hardly as if she'd be left out altogether. The screen shifted from the press conference to show the recent attacks that had inspired the Regents' declaration of war, and Dana's mouth went dry so fast that it stung the inside of her cheeks. Gascon Station. That was Gascon Station. She watched the broadcast in silence, taking in the details. Six incendiary bombs planted in secret across the station, detonating at ten-minute intervals. Emergency response thrown into disarray. Life support disconnected across whole sectors of the station. 10,000 casualties. Even taking into account passing trade and miners on Reckley, that was a third of the population of Gascon. 
She couldn't even start thinking about specifics. About which areas had been hit, which people she knew were most likely to have been where at what time of day. All she could hear was a faint buzzing sound in her ears. Aramis squeezed Dana's hand again. Dana heard Athos and Porthos arguing about which of them were going to take over the helm from Bonnie. Athos insisted he was faster, but Porthos overruled him on the grounds that the Hoyden was her damned ship. Dana wondered if Athos was even capable of flying right now. Had Grimaud given his last ampoule of Nexus to Dana when they were busy crashing the Parry Riposte? Or did she have further supplies with her? The broadcast flicked from the damage done to Gascon Station to a repeat of the Regents' declaration of war. Then the edited highlights of the questions she had answered afterwards. I need to contact my family, Dana said aloud. No one heard her in all the arguing, so she repeated it again, louder. Porthos turned to her. I have subspace credit. Give Bonnie your residential codes. She'll try to get the call through. Athos, if your butt even touches my chair, I'm going to kick you in it. Bonnie relinquished the helm to Porthos and drew Dana back into the cabin to connect the call. It didn't work the first time they tried, or the second. None of Dana's family comms were working, not her mamans or papa's personal studs, nor the home mainframe, nor any of the work codes. Neither of her sisters replied. The emergency contact line was running hot, and Dana was unlikely to make it to the front of the queue before they got back to Paris. I'll keep trying, Bonnie said finally, taking the tablet out of Dana's shaking hands. I'll get Planchet onto it. The kid's a genius with communications. Give us a little while. We'll get you through. And she did, but it took an hour. And an hour is far too long to be thinking that your family might not exist anymore. By the time the call came through, tensions were running high in the hoyden. Whoever's idea it had been to cram all three musketeers and Dana into one musket-class dart had been a dumbass. Aramis and Athos sniped at each other about religious doctrine of all things, equally frustrated at their inability to make the ship go faster by mind control. The newsreels only stopped showing the endless clips of the destruction on Gascon Station and the Regents' speech in order to report that fifty alien ships had unfolded in truth space, rendering the planet and its orbital cities, Artemisia, Valentine, Lucretia, Rochelle, under siege. No shots had yet been fired, but it was clearly a message as much as the attack on Gascon Station and the planet Freedom had been. One planet at a time. We are coming for you. Porthos, flying the Hoyden as fast as she could thanks to the wonders of spaceship design and long-lasting power globes, refused to speak to Athos or Aramis, except to say, shut up both of you, stop acting like children, and... I will make you walk the fucking plank, I swear to God. Chief, Planchet said suddenly, her voice coming through Dana's comm from the Morningstar, 
as if she was right next to her on the bunk. I've got your call. Stand by. Dana caught her breath. And then she heard her mother's voice, businesslike and firm over the subspace comm line. Dana, is that you? Maman, Dana burst out. Are you... Is everyone? But no, asking about everyone was too much. She had watched lists of known fatalities grow with every repetition on the smaller vid screen in the cabin. So many names that she knew. Friends and extended family and acquaintances. People she'd grown up with. Are you all right? Is Papa... It's bad, darling, but we're holding on, said Maman. That assurance was enough to make Dana sob out loud. She wanted desperately to beg forgiveness for leaving home and swear to kill all the sun-kissed. Instead, she stayed calm, asked sensible questions and tried not to break too hard inside as her mother reported what had been destroyed and who was dead and what was happening in the wake of the disaster. At one point, Maman stopped talking altogether, and after a scrabbling sound, Dana's elder sister, Debo, came on instead, sounding stiff and robotic. Di and Pippa were missing for six hours, she said, referring to the middle D'Artagnan sister and her wife. The kids are okay, they weren't in the school that was hit. Papa didn't want you to know, but he's been evacuated to a Medibay ship. We can't do more than field treatment on station. He was caught in one of the explosions. His burns are extensive. As Dana listened, burying herself in the sound of her older sister's familiar voice, Athos and Aramis came to sit near her on the bunk. Athos patted her briefly on the shoulder, in an, if we only had swords, I might be willing to talk about your feelings, but let's face it, probably not kind of way. He sat close enough to Dana that she could feel the warmth of him. Aramis had no restraint. Every time Dana's voice stumbled over the very basic task of exchanging words with her sister and then her mother again, Aramis reached out and rubbed small circles against her lower back. They were here, and her family were alive, and there was more to think about. War, and what it meant for all of them. Twenty-four hours later, her feet solidly planted on the ground of Luna Palais, Dana stared at the Mecca suit. She had been immersed in ships and darts in particular for so long that she could barely remember knowing what to do with one of these. She was going to have to catch up fast. Cadet d'Artagnan, said a voice behind her. Good to have you back from leave. Dana turned to find her commanding officer behind her. Commandant Essart was a short, solid woman with greying hair. She had a motherly air about her, but she could yell as loud as Amaral Treville. Ready for service, boss, Dana said, saluting. Good to hear. The rosters for the next two months will be posted in the mess later today. Two mecha units will remain here on Luna Palais for city security. The other two will be shipping out with the Royal Fleet to Truth Space. The thought of staying here when the fleet were going to war was awful beyond words. Of course they couldn't leave Paris and Luna Palais defenceless, but 
Dana could not bear the idea of being left behind. She nodded without saying anything. Truth was as close to freedom and the remains of Gascon Station as she was going to get while still contracted to the military. Would it be worse to be so damned close and still not home? You, however, will not be with any of us. If you accept this, said Essart. She handed over an envelope with a familiar blue fleur-de-lis seal upon it. Amiral Treville is short on pilots for supply transport. She wants to buy out your contract if you allow it. Your crew would be printing and ferrying supplies for the troops, providing parts for repair and replacement weapons, and running a medibay for the wounded. No military action expected. Dana opened her mouth and closed it again. Treville wanted her. She'd be with the musketeers even if she still wouldn't be one of them. She would have her own ship, a supplies venturer, rather than the musket class dart she longed for. If anything happened to Aramis, Athos or Porthos, Dana would be right there, in the midst of the action. She wouldn't be left out of the loop. She might even get a glimpse of home. If she stayed with the Mecha squad, she had a 50% chance of combat. Might have an opportunity to take bloody revenge against the bastard Sunkist. Can I think about it? she asked, not realising she was going to say those words until they were spilling out of her mouth. Essart looked almost sympathetic. Take three hours, kid. Get your head on straight. Then report to me with your decision. Yes, boss. Dana climbed inside the mecha suit and opened her thoughts to it, flexing her limbs and trying to get used to the odd sensation of controlling the heavy metal armour. She had been a long time away, but she was more attuned to the machine than when she first started. The reflexes would come back. She thought about taking a mecha into combat, of blasting the sun-kissed ships out of the sky of truth. She thought about her papa, lying in a medibay ship and complaining about being made to stay immobile while they worked on replacing his skin. She thought about how being here, protecting the regents herself, was a vital job and someone had to do it. Dana had done enough for the crown lately. It was time to think about what she wanted, what she had to offer the solar system. She made her choice. I'm going to war. Milord Vaniel de Winter was not a loving man. Love was for fools. He had no particular attachment to his daughter Morgan, the de Winter heir, who had been neatly packed off to a nursery from birth and had a series of boarding schools lined up for her future. Milord's late wife, Delia de Winter, had not inspired much in the way of love during their short marriage. He had a higher tolerance for her sister B, who was at least amusing and loyal, and played a mean game of cards. Romance and sex were political tools like any other. Milord allowed himself the occasional attraction, 
like his current hunger for the fascinating Marquise de Ward. But only after he had formed a strategy for how that romance would be useful to his schemes. If he loved anything at all, it was his ship. The Matago was a masterpiece of hidden depths. He was a dagger-class raven scout, polished black and gleaming on the outside. If you weren't paying attention, and people rarely did pay sufficient attention, he looked like any other messenger ship. If you knew what to look for, you might notice how well-preserved the ship was, without the usual wear and tear of anything piloted by a raven. The hull was glossy and smooth, and the engine purred like the cat of legend from which the ship had taken his name. A lot of money had been spent on keeping this ship in the kind of prime condition that a raven messenger could never afford. Officially, my lord and his sister-in-law were staying at the Julian, a five-star hotel on Luna Palais. Bee spent most of her time there with her irritating friends as they indulged in their usual riot of gaming, carousing and competitive sports. She had a suite on Paris satellite itself for easy access to the rec centres and team joust tanks. Bee's friends were not the only reason that Milord avoided both hotel suites. The Matago provided all his needs, including a double office that allowed he and his assistant Kitty to work in separate spaces so that her cheerful chatter did not drive him up the wall. Milord liked his office. It was less spacious than the one he used back on Valor, but it had a desk and a comfortable couch and access to every comm frequency in the solar system. There was even room to pace back and forth when his nervous energy got the better of him. The dagger-class scout was roomier than most variations of this kind of ship. There were several cabins, a basic kitchen and a gym. More than most hotels had to offer, even if you were prepared to pay top credit. Kitty's office was something that my lord suffered because good assistants were hard to find. And while Kitty was bossy, overly talkative and high-pitched, she would also work 20 hours non-stop if you needed her to. She never asked stupid questions. And she did a good line in sarcastic banter, which was, he had to admit, a great weakness of his. In exchange for Kitty's relentless work ethic, her ability to remind him to eat and sleep at regular intervals, and the fact that she had worked for him for five years without reporting any of his more illegal activities to the Crown, Milord paid her very well and allowed her to decorate her own office to her own taste. If he kept his eyes straight ahead and walked very quickly on his way to his own office, he did not have to look at the bright pastel wall decorations and the collection of flying glitter pony toys that littered her desk. The whole thing had become more tolerable once he installed a second coffee printer in his office. No one should be faced with rainbows and sparkly plush space unicorns when they're in search of coffee. Today, he was in the gym, 
using the treadmill while answering correspondence from the office back on Valor, when Kitty's bright, cheery voice broke in on the music in his headphones. Your smoking hot 1500 appointment is here early, my lord. Shall I show her to your office, or can I flirt with her while you make yourself ready? Whichever my guest prefers, he said, maintaining the usual affable charm that he used around his assistant. It was good practice for him, the illusion of an intense but kind-hearted politician. Kitty's perception of him influenced how others saw him, and the cover of Milord Daniel de Winter was too useful to risk. Daniel de Winter found Kitty amusing and allowed her to push him around because it made her feel useful. Milord hoped he would not have to kill her some day, because how the hell did one discreetly dispose of that many glitter ponies? Any word from the Marquis de Ward's people? he asked. She's taken up the Regents' offer to stay in residence at the palace for some time, said Kitty. Still working on that personal appointment, though. Everyone wants a piece of her. Might take more than a bunch of flowers and a pair of designer heels in a gift box, if you know what I mean. Milord felt his mouth press into a thin line. The Marquise de Ward would be a fascinating political ally to add to his collection but so far his overtures had been met with polite reserve. If he couldn't win her with gifts and conversation, he might have to invest the time and energy into a seduction. Milord took a brief sonic shower and dressed in business clothes for the appointment. As he straightened his tie in the mirror, he shifted his hair from comfortable silver blonde back to brown. This guest knew both sides of him, but it was a code to him as much as to her. Silver meant flirting, espionage and pretending to be equals. Brown meant valour politics, new aristocracy and business all the way. Kitty was alone in her glitter pony paradise when Milord strode past her desk. Slurping her way through a foaming green tea frappe the size of her forearm, she waggled her fingernails at him in greeting. Special Agent Rosne Cho waited in Milord's office, her boots propped up on his desk, and a cup of black coffee balanced on the arm of her chair. Not interrupting anything, am I? she asked. Milord was unsettled by her early appearance. Appointment times should be as sacrosanct as contracts. What's so urgent it couldn't wait an hour? Rose surveyed him from beneath her dark sweep of hair. Her flight suit today was a bright musk pink, frivolous as always. It was one of many techniques she employed to make people underestimate how dangerous she was. My lord appreciated that about her. There were times when he wondered if Kitty, with her purple hair and sugared drinks and pony obsession, was doing the same thing. Possibly she was an assassin in disguise. I was at a loose end. There's a lot to do today, Rose said carelessly. Don't you know there's a war on? Milord rolled his eyes at her. He allowed a certain amount of teasing for the same reason that Roe wore candy-coloured flight suits. 
it didn't hurt to let other people think you were fair game. Intimacy was like anything else, a tool to be carefully distributed and then exploited. How can I be of use to the Cardinal today? Roe blinked steadily at him. I'm not here on behalf of Her Eminence today. The Regents has given me a mission, and I thought you might have useful intelligence. Interesting. It wasn't unlike Roe to roll where the weather took her, but it surprised him that the Cardinal allowed her loyalties to be shared. Milord let his voice drop into a low, amused drawl. I am honoured. How can I help the regents? I am on the lookout for an asset that the prince consort is upset to have lost. He laughed at that. Not the little tailor. He's been kidnapped. He makes a habit of that. Milord raised his eyebrows at her. Usually it's you. Roe scowled. Not this time. Do you know where he is? I couldn't begin to imagine, but I promise I'll keep my eye out on my travels. People often turn up in the strangest places. The reward is very generous. I'll keep that in mind. Anything else? The stare he got from her was intense and thorough, as if she was trying to pull the knowledge of Conrad Sue's whereabouts directly from his mind. D'Artagnan, she said after a moment. Milord batted his eyelashes at her. Who? She's a new favourite of Prince Alec, and by extension, the Regents. Hangs around with musketeers? Gets into trouble, like it's a superpower. I don't know anyone by that name, Milord replied with his sweetest smile. It was true to a point. The woman he'd met on that train back on Valor had used a different identity. The Cardinal doesn't want anything to happen to Dana d'Artagnan, Rose said in a firm voice. Not in retaliation for recent events or anything else. Her eminence is all for a united front with the Crown for the duration of the war. D'Artagnan is off-limits. Neither of them mentioned diamonds, as the reason someone might wish to retaliate against the young pilot who'd made herself so very difficult lately. D'Artagnan is off limits, Milord agreed. Got it. He continued to smile, his gaze fixed on Rose's beautiful scarred face, until she took her leave of him. Always a pleasure, Milord. You too, sweetness, he replied, and they kissed the corners of each other's mouths in polite pretense that they weren't now on opposing sides of a game that was getting interesting. Milord waited until Roe was gone, then chimed through the comm to Kitty. Any more appointments this afternoon? No, my Lord de Winter. Let's take a joyride. File a flight plan for the Tower Asteroid. I want to check on our guest. Whatever you say, boss. Will we be back by tomorrow evening? That's karaoke night in the South Quarter. Some very cute Angie's offered to buy me drinks. You know how I hate to interfere with your social life.
This will be a short trip. Right you are, boss. My lord closed the door between their adjoining offices and examined himself in the mirrored surface. He straightened his tie and the collar of his shirt. Roe knew him too well. The only reason of her to arrive early was to rattle him. He would not allow it. Kitty, scratch that, he called through his comp. We'll stay with the original plan. Our guest can wait a few more days. The last thing he wanted was to be tracked to the holding location of his prisoner. Order a security sweep of the Matago from top to tail. Let's be sure Special Agent Cho didn't leave us any small blinking gifts. Isn't she a friend of yours, my lord? Kitty said in surprise. Oh, she is, he agreed, gazing at his reflection. He stretched his neck casually and let himself fall from moment into his natural shape. Red blossomed across his skin, highlighting his cheekbones and the soft creases in the corner of his eyes. His eyes darkened to blown black pupils with tiny darts of golden light flecked through them. His skin flooded with the warmth that smelled like home. In this moment, he was not Winter, or Vaniel, or Milord, or Auden, or Slate, or Grey, or any of the other names he had worn in service of his long career of pretending to be human. For a few precious seconds, he was gloriously himself. Then he blinked back to my lord Vaniel de Winter, Secretary of the Interior on Valor, political obsessive, absent father, loyal brother-in-law, and all-around good person to have in your corner. Tussled brown hair, pale skin, grey eyes. Rosne Cho is a very good friend of mine, he assured Kitty, adjusting his cuffs and smoothing out the soft lines of his jacket. That's what makes her so dangerous. He would allow himself no more personal indulgences. There was a war on, after all. A war against the human race and the solar system they held. So dear. Thanks for listening to Sheep Might Fly. I'll be back in a few months with the second half of Musketeer Space, the mighty, mighty space epic. Uh, in the meantime, there will be a Belladonna U story to break things up a little bit. Uh, you can sign up to my author newsletter for updates. Follow me on Twitter at TansyRR or at Sheep Might Fly. Find me on Facebook at TansyRR Books. And if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of cool rewards, early ebooks, including the entire Musketeer space, uh, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. See you next week. <laughs>